1: What would you do if you knew you were going to die, or that someone you loved was going to die? Well, guess what? You are, and you do. No mai harimai, and welcome to Death Walker's Guide to Life, a euphemism-free show that deals with everything about death and dying you wish you knew but were afraid to ask. In it, we'll explore together how thinking and talking about death can help you live a life without regrets. Ko Kerry Sunderland toku Inua. My name is Kerry Sunderland and I'm the host and producer of the show, which is first broadcast on Fresh FM in Tītōihu, the top of Aotearoa, New Zealand's South Island, and then available around the world on many of the major podcast platforms. Deathwalker's Walker's Guide to Life is produced with the support of the Tasman District Creative Community Scheme, so big thanks to them. And if you'd like to find out how to get involved or wish to support the show in other ways, please go to the website, which is deathwalkersguidetolife.com. Kia ora, and thank you for joining me for Episode 2 of Season 2 of Death Walker's Guide to Life. My name's Kerry Sunderland and coming up on today's show, I will be speaking with self-described earthy, grounded nature boy, Bill McEwen, a good friend of mine who is 77 years old and reflects on his full and active life and his journey towards and his thoughts about his own mortality and end of life. But first, it is time for Death in Print. In each episode, I look at a book or an article that has made me think something new or different about death and dying. So today I want to talk about Robert Dessay's memoir, published in 2014, which is called What Days Are For. I'll just read you the back cover blurb to give you a bit of an introduction to the book. One Sunday night in Sydney, Robert Dessay collapses on a Darlinghurst pavement and is helped to his hotel by a kind young man. What follows are weeks in hospital, tubes and cannula puncturing his body as he recovers from the heart attack threatening daily to kill him. While lying in the hospital bed, Robert chances upon Philip Larkin's poem, Days. What, he muses, have his days been for? What and who has he loved and why? So the book is described as vintage Robert Desai, his often surprisingly funny recollections and they range over topics as eclectic, as intimacy, travel, spirituality, enchantment, language and childhood, all woven through with a heightened sense of mortality, which I guess is a bit of a theme for today's show. The book's publisher, Random House, describes the memoir as witty, acerbic, insightful musings. My impression after reading it was witty sometimes, acerbic often, and insightful maybe. Desai gives us hints all over the place that he is searching for meaning, and while vigilantly ensuring he will never earn the label new age, something which he despises, he strays into the mystic's territory, even early on. For example, in the opening pages he writes, coincidences, I think to myself foggily, can be so vivifying. I think they can be too. He then writes about patterns he sees in his close call with death. He was reading about the nauseating hero in Michelle Hulmebock's novel collapsing around midnight. Then he himself collapses around midnight. He notes that everything significant seems to happen on Sundays after lunch. He playfully taunts us with Kali, a borrowed god, Knowing that his acquaintance with Kali happened well after his heart attack lends even more weight to my argument that perhaps Desai might be happy to claim his own spiritual beliefs if he could avoid sounding new age. He admits horoscopes, these squirts of hogwash as he describes them, make compelling reading. But pity those who resort to religious cliches or spiritual homilies. They will be accused of picturesque gobbledygook. While he is willing to sermonise that big decisions should be made on the spot, he says, taking part in ceremonies I don't believe in embarrasses me. So there's this mix of contradictory ideas. Well, I found them contradictory, but really thought-provoking. He questions why so many Westerners are attracted to Indian religions. It's a very good question, and one I've explored in my own writing. But I'm not sure I agree with say when he says that it's got something to do with the fact that People can claim not to be religious as such, but they are embracing a way of life. I mean, perhaps this is true of Buddhism, but I fail to see how the case can be made for appropriating only parts, say yoga or kirtan or vegetarianism of Hinduism. I love the scene in which Desai describes his visit to a friend of a friend whose private pantheon is crammed full of statues of Jesus, Buddha, a dazzling array of Hindu gods and goddesses, as well as a copy of the Quran, just to be on the safe side. <laughs> he writes, I'd never encountered that kind of religious promiscuity before. What on earth inspires it? A blanket misunderstanding of what any of these creed teaches." Now, while I am certainly no theologist, I think to say reveal reveals something about himself here because it's my understanding that many of the world's religions do share a great deal in common at their core. The belief in an afterlife being central, but also as one of my fellow MA students noted in a beautiful lyric essay, in most mythological worlds, there is a creation story that begins with an egg, but it's more contemporary interpretations by men, usually that position them as opposites. While he finds it hard to warm up to any deity who isn't love, he doesn't trust that slippery words spiritual one little bit, but he can't help but drop it in as a simile for radiant refinement that rubs against shabbiness. But this encounter with the experiences of spiritual elegance in Malaysia could merely be the result of the right sound effects and lightening. Lighting, and he's not sure he trusts his own judgment. Later in the book, he criticises the use of the word spiritual in the West, arguing most people use it as a synonym for something other than spiritual. In many ways, this book is an extended essay on the semantics of the numinous. And someone who is as someone who is fascinated with linguistics, I enjoyed the questions he raised about the words we now often use without thinking. Despite his intense fascination with Hindu gods, He doesn't say he doesn't believe in this Kali or Ganesh business in any literal sense. And he quotes E.M. Forster, who defined religion in a passage to India as just a collection of bombots. Desai argues that unlike Christianity and Islam, you don't have to take Hinduism seriously. There's something deeply liberating about the Hindu take on things, he writes. However, he empathises with humanity's search for meaning. Dessay expresses his disgust at the idea that we should or even can live in the moment, an idea he describes in parenthesis as how fatuous. It's also been voguish for a long time now to talk about living in the moment, but it strikes him as a witless approach to passing time for humans. He parades a number of elderly people with dementia as proof. He expresses some allegiance with Egyptians. He says, I feel as if I've split into three the way Egyptians did when they died. Although after explaining Ka, Ba and Ak, he dismisses it all as complete hogwash. The lot of it, clearly, utter tripe and Tommy rot. (laughs) He has some great expressions. Questioning whether there is an afterlife, he notes that Aborigines believed in an afterlife well before the ancient Egyptians or Chinese. This is a fascinating insight into the indigenous culture of my own country. I am ashamed to admit that I am ignorant of everything other than the fact that Australian Aboriginals do not speak the names of their dead, and out of respect, many filmmakers and TV producers warn their viewers when images of dead people will be broadcast. But given to say somewhat crude analysis of other religious practices, I'm not so sure I can trust him. There, that's said. I do not find him a reliable narrator. Reading what days are for was largely an intellectual exercise for me. The only emotion I felt was occasional antagonism. I did not want to just say was left kind of pitting him. I doubt this was his intention, but he did make me think about a lot of things and he has an extremely elegant way of describing what is wrong with the modern world. Describing a whole army of interconnected people interconnecting on little handheld devices. He writes, They appeared to have no eyes or ears for the worlds around them. They moved about it like bacteria under a microscope, sensually disconnected. Their feverish connectedness had an oddly disembodied, almost incorporeal quality to it. There is nobody there anymore or here. There's no Darshan. Television has got a lot to answer for. It looks like Darshan but it's not. On this point, I finally agree. You're listening to Death Walker's Guide to Life. Joining me now is my dear friend Bill McEwen, who was born in Picton in 1944 and returned in 2006 to care for his elderly parents and has lived there ever since. Bill is living an active retirement in his hometown, where he is one of the founding members of Climate Karanga Marlborough. He also organises the Marlborough Thermet Society. I think they have an annual gathering at a riverbed where they get their thermets burning and brew tea. And he's also the organiser of the annual Blue Duck Midwinter Nude Swim. Bill is a kind and gentle man who has taught me much about compassion, tolerance, whakaronga or genuine listening, and also about ageing disgracefully. Shara, Bill, and welcome to Death Walker's Guide to
0: Life. Thanks, Kerry.
1: Thank you for joining me in the studio today. I want to start by asking you to cast your mind right back to the beginning of your life and when you first became aware of death. Can you remember the circumstances or the situation? What's your earliest memory?
0: When I was 11, uh, a, a Bristol freighter crashed in Rusty Golf Course in Christchurch and aboard that were... Robert Hamilton, who lived next door, and Helga Torgerson, who lived in front of us. And both of those men, uh, fathers, fathers of our friends were killed. And I still remember the deep pall that hung over our neighbourhood. It it was just so tragic and deeply felt. And we kids felt it deeply, uh, not just the adults. And we weren't protected from it, uh, and we couldn't be. So they they are the first memories that I have from my childhood. Would
1: that have been in the sort of late 50s, early 60s? Yeah, mid-50s. Mid-50s, yeah. So the war was still present, I guess, in everyone's psyche and memories and, and, you know, in that Ah. post-war period.
0: (laughs) Absolutely, yeah, that was within 10 years of the end of uh, Second World War. You raise an interesting thing because I was born in 1944 and my parents both uh, were in the Army and Air Force respectively and my father was wounded in the desert and came back on a hospital ship and uh, the war, the deaths and losses during the war hung heavily in our household, almost unconsciously. I, I find myself quite tender as I speak to you because I remember my mother, I must have been a about, you know, 12 or 13, maybe younger. She told me one day of a man that she loved who was training to be a pilot and he crashed and was killed. This is at Hobsonville, north of Auckland. And because of her connection with that man, she volunteered to clean out his room and it should have taken an hour it took her a day and her friends came and bought her lunch and cups of tea. She uh, sorted through his belongings and packed them up for his parents and did her own work. And uh, she wept as she told me that. So there are... You know, there were lots of losses associated with the war and it's been one of the themes of my life has been lost love which was inculcated into me unconsciously and I became conscious of that as I matured. Mm. There was a kind of a wistfulness about loss.
1: But it's also quite extraordinary that your mother told you that story and that she showed you her grief because... That must have been an influential uh, beginning to being able to communicate around, around grief and loss.
0: Uh, she, she knew that I was a, an introvert and that I would understand. And I think she waited a while before she told me that. It was probably, probably after we'd played cards for most of the night <laughs> and were in a soft place. Mm. And it's one of the things that I value about my mother who was quite austere in some ways, but also had a a softness um, which she chose to talk to me about. And she had some sense, I think, that she would be heard, and she was. I think that perhaps set a pattern for some quite important qualities that emerged in my later life, that capacity to be trusted with the soft and vulnerable places of others
1: actually that's what i would like to ask you about next is how you actually became somebody who supported other people through the difficult times in their lives in many way with Mm. your professional work can you just tell us a little bit about that journey
0: (laughs) it's a funny journey because um talk about my own mother who was very loving but also very austere and really had it all over us kids as far as being the boss. And we didn't cross her much, and we were afraid to cross her. And also, my uh, as my parents' marriage unravelled, uh, there was a lot of conflict, so we kids became quite conflict-avoidant and would seek other any other way, if at all possible, rather than fighting. And one of the... Weird side effects of that was to uh, be quiet and seek to understand rather than be reactive or combative. So it was a kind of dysfunctional um, response, really, but it was one that uh, had big payoffs for me because I started to know that when I shut up and listened, wonderful things could happen. Mm.
1: Mm, and that's a lesson that you've carried right through to today as being a, a, a very good
0: listener. Um, I'm still growing there. It's <laughs> very modest uh, of you, b- but I it. certainly, I certainly uh, <laughs> cry out in protest when uh, when there isn't listening. Yeah, and there's a lot of not listening. Yes, mm. an awful lot.
1: Do you think it is essential for someone to personally experience some sort of loss and bereavement before being able to support others around those events in their lives?
0: I think it is possible to do that without the experience, and some people do that really well. I think having had experience of loss gives an added dimension, particularly if if that loss has been painful uh, and instructive and there is some ability to work out how that happened and why and then say well I'm not going to go down that road again turning the experience to profit in some way Uh, and I'm a great believer that uh, a lot of learning can come from emulation and following others and learning but uh, a lot of the fertile learning comes from cul de or poor experiences and, and not being resolved not to repeat those but to think, hang on uh, this wasn't good for me um, I want to work out how I can heal from this or how I can do this better and so uh, I had people in front of me who were uh, very good at action reflection by having experience and reflecting on it and then growing through it uh, I, I had very good mentors in that arena, so a lot of those bruising experiences uh, weren't wasted.
1: Can you talk a little bit about your work as a pastor and then the decision to move more into counseling as you know that for for many years in your professional life?
0: My move into being a Protestant minister came about really from the muscular Christianity that I embrace as a as a teenager growing up in Marlborough and again a mentor, a man, a teacher who's had a shit together really and was quite a keen Christian and uh, uh, I loved the outdoors and there were Christian camps and things that fell into into place very powerfully for me and also being quite introspective and serious-minded and wondering what life was all about. So that was very good for me and as my own family was fragmenting, that actually provided a very good scaffold for me—the the, the church, Presbyterian Church at the time, and the and the youth group that was surrounded that. So, I'm very grateful for for that uh, scaffolding.
1: And then you went from that to being a uh, a qualified counsellor. Yes, yes, Working in that
0: field, um, I I was a farm advisor for a while, and I remember uh, leaning over a, a North Canterbury gate talking to a farmer about his farm, and he, was, he had four daughters that he was sending to private secondary school, and it was just bleeding the farm. And I think I went there to look at his ryegrass, but I became more interested in why he was doing this. I became more interested in psychological, emotional factors and motivations, etc. So I knew then that I uh, didn't want to deal in technical areas. I wanted to deal with areas of meaning in my life. So ultimately that led me into Presbyterian ministry, the Presbyterian church, and then to a degree, a Bachelor of Theology at Knox College, in which I again realised that I was interested in pastoral work, that I was interested in depth work, and not interested in ecclesiastical history or dogma or that sort of stuff. I was interested in humanity and what it is to be fully human and fully alive and fully well. So that's what led me into, uh, into the ministry. And ultimately out of a parish where I learned some very valuable things about people. And in those early days, I was educated and helped more by other people than I helped them. But I did carry on this conviction I hold to this day about the need to be heard above all else and to be known and to uh, be reflected back upon uh, in, in the healing of wounds and as individuals find their direction. I have a powerful belief in human beings to, if they're heard properly and uh, are reflected back on, can see themselves clearly and have intrinsically have uh, a willingness and a capacity to grow. Yeah, that's, a, that's a, a wonderful thing. So I moved from a parish into, and I made sure I had some training in hospital chaplaincy, in counselling clinics and Parua Hospital, all sorts of places. where I got bruised and reflected and went back for more and had um, supervisors who were candid and confronting and also kind and tolerant with me. And so this this is where I went into chaplaincy and this is where I started to learn more about depth work and being in a hospital where there's lots of busyness and lots of procedures, lots of things that are done to people including in psychiatry with um, medication, but because of limited resources and having to hurry along in the powerful medical model, there were few of us who had the time to sit in the dark and uh, and listen, you know, to go up to the hospital at night when everything was quiet and sit with people and hear things that previously had been un- had not been spoken and to hear those things and to Hear how simple and powerful that was in in healing. Hmm.
1: Thank you. That really reinforces what you were saying about how fundamental it is to be heard as an experience, and for some people, maybe that comes at right at the end of their life, and
0: hmm.
1: and very important hmm. that you were there with them.
0: Yeah. Uh, well. Absolutely. absolutely. I think it's important right throughout life. It's important when a baby is born and gurgles and looks into the face of the adult to have that heard and reflected. It's a basic human need. But particularly so at the end of life, I think when there is fear and aloneness and anxiety and sometimes pain, Emotional and uh, and uh, physical pain. Also, I think the hospice movement is absolutely wonderful in its capacity to make sure that people are supported physically, but also supported uh, emotionally and psychologically by being heard. And um, you know, privileged to be part of that that tradition.
1: For some, talking about death and dying is one of the most dif- difficult topics to broach with family and close friends. Um, the premise of this show is that talking about dying and death can help you live a life without regrets. Does mm. that ring true to you in in any way?
0: Um, I think living without regrets is a pretty elusive <laughs> state <laughs> 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 because most of us all carry shames and regrets of one form or another mm. into our lives. That we were things that we wished hadn't happened, we hadn't said or done, or whatever. So, I think. It's not possible to live a life without regrets if you're going to live life fully. I think, I think for humanness to be heard, I think it's a very incomplete process, Kerry, um, because I think people have different things to say at the end of their lives. And I think for the helper, it's important to suss out what is it that this person is wanting right at this moment. And that requires intuition as much as learning. And I think if you're sitting with people, enough people long enough, you learn how to do that. And you learn when to speak and not to speak. And Because there are some people who don't want to talk about death for one reason or another. And it's normally from a lifetime of protecting the self and some way and and then there are others who will so I I think it's a mistake to say that everyone wants to talk about death and dying and I've been with lots of people who've not wanted to do that I've also talked with a lot of people who've not had the opportunity until myself or other people have got to them
1: How has your relationship with your own mortality changed over your life?
0: I'm now 77 uh, and my friends are dying around me. Uh, that is not distressing to me. It's more that I miss them. Their they're, they're dying is... There's a strange comfort to their dying in the sense that, that we are men and women of our age and this is what we are doing. And one by one we start to die... So it may seem weird, but I feel in in my concern about my own dying, I feel in good company. Mm. This is (laughs) not quite the sport of the time, but uh, this is the age in which we're beginning to do that. So I've always been quite a fan of of being reasonably age-appropriate and not out of the kind of uh, developmental journey that I'm in. I'm hoping that I'm not going to be an early dyer, that I'm not going to uh, go to an early death. I have more life to live uh, yet. But I have come across some ideas recently. There's a man who's been very powerful for me, a guy called Bill Plotkin, who's written a book, Nature and the Human Soul, he talks about the kind of cycle of life and he one of the things he talked about is you know children being born in the east and rising in the southern hemisphere, rising into adolescence in the north and to midlife in the west, and then the descent into into darkness and into the south. And at my age, I'm in the kind of in the last quadrant, which is in the south and rising to the east. And what I'm doing in rising to the to the east, I'm actually rising into the sun. And for a lot of my... Life I'd thought about death as descent into nothingness or darkness or dissolution or whatever. And really, having this idea about rising into the East has been very liberating because I'm rising into the place where the young ones are being born. And that's that's, that's a very lovely idea. So I'm not descending into nothingness. I have no idea about my ultimate destiny and that doesn't concern me a lot. But I'm, I'm rising into the light, whatever that means. One of my big concerns at the moment, it would be the manner of my dying. I, I fear a stroke. I fear being in a rest home in Marlborough, which is a rest home that's dedicated to uh, earning good money for the shareholders and pays their staff not enough and being surrounded by people who, are, who call me love and who are really lovely people, but who won't be able to listen to me. And that I might be, uh, that a lot of the people around me will, that I've lived in love with have gone some way, And my children might be living elsewhere. It's not a huge concern, but that would be my major concern, major concern, the manner of my dying, and the existential, the loneliness that might come. I've been cast up without buddies that I can be, Press with or affectionate with, and we've got these kind of shorthands that we know from long familiarity. Hmm.
1: I think you've said twice now that you're not overly concerned or or attached to what might happen after you die. Hmm. The idea of an afterlife, which I wonder if that's changed too, because you were a you know a, re- a religious practitioner for for many years, where there were certain belief systems around. What happens after death?
0: The particular faith that I embraced was not about heaven and hell. And, and then I grew out of that duality anyway to a much more whole, holistic way of doing things. My, my religion was about uh, the here and now and about living life as authentically as possible now. So I've never had much interest in heaven. Also, I, I was born in Picton, I grew up in Nelson and Marlborough as a teenager, and I found heaven on earth because I, I grew up in, on the edge of Blenheim in, in the country and with beautiful experiences of, of nature and the greater-than-human world. And I've never wanted to live in any other place. <laughs> and and, and, and uh, the idea of heaven is... Well, unless it's an extension of what I know,'m I'm, I'm not interested. <laughs> and And of course, what my love of of the life I've been able to have has kind of led me into a deeper concern about the, the way in, that, uh, in which that is now under threat, and that's of deep concern to me. So I've been I am an earthy, an earthy, grounded nature boy, who is quite sensual and uh, deeply appreciative of aesthetic beauty, of balance, of design, uh, you know, of warmth and shelter and food and company and good people and generosity and love, all that richness in life, art and music, love all that. And um, I want to keep that as long as I can, but not frenetically and not at any cost.
1: After that long list of wonderful things about living, I, I'm feeling a bit cautious about asking <laughs> you this question now, but I wanted to ask you about the grief you've experienced in response to the sorrows of the world and particularly to the, nat- you know, the destruction to the natural world. Yeah, yeah. And I was thinking about the saying, you know, there's that saying, live like there's no tomorrow, which hmm. <laughs> seems to manifest in a lot of disregard for the long-term intergenerational consequences of our actions now Mm. and many people don't live like they could die at any moment Mm. or or they forget or they bury that possibility Mm. so i'm interested in what your thoughts are on the relationship if any between death phobia or inability to acknowledge that we're mortal and our overconsumption and our what's happening to the planet in terms of us using up resources mm. way too fast.
0: Mm. Okay. Mm. Well, there's several threads there, Kerry. I'll go back to the beginning. You talked about sorrow. And I think it is the human condition to carry sorrow. And it's also the human opportunity for us as uh, men and women and children to accompany each other in our sorrow because that, that's a given. And I think that theres sorrow that can be healed, and there's also sorrow that can be created. And I have a deep admiration for our ability as humans to uh, create wonderful things, and you know the technology, etc. It's absolutely wonderful. Uh, but I do carry some sorrows about the society that I'm in in that it is a society that is generally uh, a death. Denying society that we are have become fundamentally an acquisitive society that is interested in progress, is interested in youth, uh, interested in celebrating achievement, and also uh, concentrates a lot on perfection and rewarding perfection, and unthinkingly applies the adage if it's technological possible it must be done and i think that that what that's done has thrown up a huge amount of anxiety in society and a neglect and and a fear of dying because our uh we are being encouraged to hold on to life uh at any cost and to cling too tightly to life and have not learned the art of letting go. And that, for me, is a fundamental thing that I learned uh, before I got to the hospital, but hugely in the hospital. The hospital is a place of truth where people encountered the truth about themselves and that fundamental ability to, uh, to let go and not to hold too tightly is a basic... A rhythm of life. I mean, it's right throughout life stages. You know, the parent of adolescent children, how to, how to shape or insist or, but how much to surrender. You know, to their own maturation, individuation. How to let go of your own ego in mid, late, late life, and to have that replaced with a kind of more eco consciousness. So that, so that taking up and letting go is a kind of fundamental thing, and. The dominant culture that we're in does not encourage that; it encourages acquisition above the ability to div- to divest. And so, I think you know, death phobia can it can come from that. Death is frightening enough as it is without that basic taking up and letting go, and how fundamental that is, and how normal it is, and how it is to be embraced rather than run away from. And then the second part of what you'd say (laughs) of the third or fourth was um, about the planet in which I live. And I was born in 1944. And my life has been wonderfully built on the back of fossil fuels. And unknowingly so, we weren't aware when I was aware that what we were doing. It wasn't widespread. And I've got a background in agricultural science, particularly in plant science, and it's given me a powerful interest in that. And also... A uh, keen love for the earth, and so I've I've read certain people who have chased me along. I remember m- reading Bill McC- McCubbin's The End of Nature twenty twenty five years ago, and uh, became enlivened about what we're doing to the world and how we are by drawing upon this ancient fossil energy, essentially altering the beautiful balance of our earth and I've seen in my lifetime I go the changes I go to the Environment Committee of Malwood District Council report after report after report of degradation stress loss Uh, it's it's all there all there to see and the whole affluenza which um, dominates our society and so I'm, I'm dominated really by people who are thinking about what it is to be human and what we're doing to the planet that we're on, you know, the Revenge of Gaia, Lovelock Revenge of Gaia, so these radical thinkers. And I don't carry uh, a great deal of faith in technology to save us from this dilemma. We've actually got to reduce our emissions and do two things. We've got to adapt for a a deeply changed world, and we've also got to continue to uh, reduce our emissions so that that some of us will survive. I I don't like to be maudlin or grim, but I in this arena I am. I think that we are engaging, sometimes without awareness, but we are rushing uh, headlessly into a very altered planet, and it's been a pain for me to realise that not many people know that or if they know that, are willing to change their lifestyle. And it's quite difficult for me to change my lifestyle in a privileged society embedded in a fossil fuel economy, but um, I'm doing what I can.
1: So interesting that two of the most influential thinkers and, and writers have, for you have been Bill's as well. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I hadn't noticed that, but where Bill there's McCublin, a will there's a way, I Bill suppose. Bill Plotkin. <laughs>
1: I'm going to end with a more light-hearted question. So in every interview I ask my guests to nominate a song that they would like played at their funeral or wake. And I've put together a special playlist on Spotify called Farewell Songs and the song I just list the song into that Mm. can you think of a song the first one that pops into your head if you haven't thought about it before (laughs) (laughs) that you would love to (laughs) love that would you would love people to to listen to and and you know learn something about how you embrace life
0: Ah. well there's a full range full range here uh What's well, one that's popping? Oh yeah, well, like my... another one bites the dust. <laughs> <laughs> Wish me luck as you wave me goodbye from Second World War. I think uh Massonet has written a beautiful thing, theme from Taze. It's a classical piece in which it has a very beautiful solo violin and then reaches a crescendo and then comes back to that. Uh very beautiful thing and Mm-hmm. I, it's a piece of music that I cry to mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and it's got the full range of things in it but above all it's got uh, the haunting sound of a melodic simple violin which evokes in me uh, both sadness and great joy.
1: Thank you very much Bill. Thank you for joining me on today's show My name is Kerry Sunderland, and I've been talking with Bill McEwen. Now it's time for Death on Screen. In each episode, I look at a film or TV series or a website that has something to do with death and dying. So today I'm going to talk about the Death Walkers Guide to Life website and I encourage you to go and have a look. It's deathwalkersguidetolife.com. There you can catch up on previous episodes including all the seven episodes from season one and episode, the first episode of this, season two. You can also access information about my guests. You can watch trailers for the TV shows and films that I talk about. You can find out where, how and where to buy the books I talk about as well. I also want to talk a little bit about The Lotus Flower, which is kind of like my logo for the, TV, uh, for the radio show. And uh, it's maybe going to become a TV show one day. Radio show and podcast series. So The Lotus Flower represents rebirth and new beginnings. And I thought it presented the perfect analogy for the human condition, because even though it grows in dark, muddy waters, it produces the most beautiful flower. And it also represents the cycle of life, that that cycle of birth, decay, death, and rebirth. And orange, the colour, I learned, symbolises death, because it's the colour of autumn leaves or fall leaves. And it also represents the lotus flower also represents joy enthusiasm and the expression of emotions now one of the links i'm going to put up on death walker's guide to life uh, website for episode two this episode of season two of the show is a link to the nelson poetry map which is a great resource where you can actually find poems located on a google map of the top of the south And in particular, there's this one lovely poem by the very famous New Zealand poet Bill Manhire. And it's called Kevin. And I'm not going to read it all, but I'll read you the first stanza or verse. And then I encourage you to go and find it on the map and read the rest of the poem yourself. So that poem opens with I don't know where the dead go, Kevin. The one far place I know is inside the heavy radio. If I listen late at night, there's that dark celestial glow. Heaviness of the cave, the hive. So you can see why I chose that poem. It has a lot to do with this show, not only talking about the dead, but also talking about the radio. We've come to the end of today's show. You've been listening to Death Walker's Guide to Life with Kerry Sunderland. Find out more about the show and catch up on previous episodes at DeathwalkersguideToLife.com. Once again, Kamihi, a big thank you to Tasman District Creative Community Scheme for supporting the show. Matiwa, see you next time.
0: Fly away.